the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show on this Thanksgiving week. Glad to have you with us. James Blind is producing Clark Hilton Engineering, and Dan Rice has given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Today, we're going to share an interview with Holly Girth. She's the author of The Powerful Purpose of Introverts. It's a great book on the subject to not un- only understand yourself if you are an introvert, but to understand those in your life, uh, life who are. And uh, again, the book subtitle is Why the World Needs You to Be You. That's all coming up in the five o'clock hour. Looking forward to that conversation. Well, a Dominion representative responded to the Trump campaign's claims, uh, saying that it's uh, physically impossible to switch votes. Now, there's been there have been allegations that Dominion uh, machines were partisan and could be manipulated. Well, attorney Sidney Powell uh, claims the 2020 election was significantly impacted by votes cast through machines from Dominion voting systems being altered to go to Joe Biden instead of President Trump. But according to Dominion spokesperson in an interview with Fox News' Eric Sean on America's News headquarters on Sunday, Steele addressed the allegations that Dominion had faced and explained why he believes they are without merit. Uh, well, it's physically impossible, Steele said, of vote switching. Look, when a voter votes on a Dominion machine, they fill out a ballot on a touchscreen. They are given a printed copy, which they then give to a local election official for safekeeping if any electrical interference has taken place. The tally reported electronically would not match the printed ballot. And in every case where we've locked, uh, we've looked at rather in Georgia, all across the country, the printed ballot, the gold standard in election security has matched the electronic tally in quote. Well, Powell has said that she has a witness who saw it used for the, um, this purpose in Venezuela and that the votes for the U.S. election uh, were counted in counties such as Spain and Germany. Steele flatly rejected this notion. And by the way, Sidney Powell is no longer on the Trump campaign legal team. But Steele says this, we simply provide a tool to count the ballots, to print and count ballots. There is no way such a massive fraud could have taken place and there are no connection Uh, connections between our company and Venezuela, Germany, Barcelona, Kathmandu, whatever the latest conspiracy theory is, end quote. The Republican canvassing board member in uh, Michigan uh, could delay the vote certification there, and Putin is holding off on U.S. presidential congratulations. A Biden advisor says Trump is seeking to subvert the democratic system with legal challenges, although when it was... um, uh, Bush and Gore, the legal challenges continued beyond today's date. We'll tell you more about that later. Biden is expected to make a trip to Georgia to stump for Senate hopefuls Ossoff and Warnock. And presumptive President-elect Biden declines to say where he stands on the BLM-backed Breathe Act. Well, Sidney Powell responds to Giuliani's statement about her role on the legal team. President Trump's campaign on Sunday distanced itself from Sidney Powell, saying that the lawyer who has uh, been alleged, uh, alleging voter fraud in the November election is not a member of the Trump legal team. Sidney Powell is practicing law on her own, said Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, and another lawyer for Trump. 
Jean Ellis, in a statement. She is not a member of the Trump legal team. She is also not a lawyer for the president in his personal capacity. No further details or clarifications were offered. Well, in a statement obtained by the Wall Street Journal, Powell said, I agree with the statement today. I will represent Hashtag we the people and seek the truth. I intend to expose all the fraud and let the chips fall where they may. We will not allow the foundations of this great republic to be destroyed by abject fraud, end quote. Well, the statement comes after Powell, who's also uh, serving as um, General Mike Flynn's lawyer, has given multiple press conferences on behalf of Trump, who included her in a list of lawyers for his team on the 14th of November in a tweet. I look forward to Mayor Giuliani spearheading the legal effort to defund our right to free and fair elections. Rudy Giuliani, Joseph DiGenova, Victoria Tonzing, Sidney Powell and Jenna Ellis. A truly great team added to our uh, other wonderful lawyers and representatives, the president tweeted. I explained the confusion. Well, Biden has picked Anthony Blinken uh, as his top diplomat. And Chris Christie rips the Trump legal team, calling them a national embarrassment. Well, Trump's campaign has filed an appeal after a Pennsylvania judge shot down their lawsuit. Andrew McCarthy says Trump's flawed Pennsylvania election challenge fell short. And Alan Dershowitz says Trump has a constitutional path, in fact, multiple paths to pursue in court, uh, but will likely fall short. Well, Oregon Governor Brown is making national news headlines and telling residents to call law enforcement on people violating COVID restrictions. As the nation's crackdown on group activities so close to the Thanksgiving holiday, Governor Brown, a Democrat, has told Oregonians to call the cops if they see coronavirus violations. This is no different than what happens if there's a party down the street and it's uh, keeping everyone awake, Brown said in an interview on Friday. What do neighbors do in that case? They call law enforcement because it's too noisy. This is just like that. It's like a violation of a noise ordinance, end quote. So keep your binoculars handy to spy on your neighbors on Thanksgiving to count how many people come and go from the residence. Call the governor's office and then call law enforcement, which we have largely defunded in the Portland area. Well, the governor ordered a two week freeze that includes uh, limiting indoor and outdoor gatherings to no more than six people from no more than two households in an effort to curb the spread of the coronavirus. Violators could face up to 30 days in jail or twelve hundred fifty dollars in fines or both. The Oregonian reported Brown said she would work with state police and law enforcement to enforce Oregonians to comply with her mandate. The order does allow faith based gatherings of up to 25 people indoors and 50 people outdoors. You might just say you're having a church service. Anyway, new confirmed and presumptive cases of COVID-19 have reached a record high for the third straight day in Oregon. State officials announced on Sunday. Meanwhile, protesters took to the street in California to bash Gavin Newsom's curfew orders and Cuomo calls a secret Hasidic wedding in Brooklyn a blatant disregard for the law. Columbia University has barred 70 MBA students from classes after a trip to Turks and Caicos. Representative Jordan is ripping the coronavirus restrictions, saying the Constitution is not suspended during a crisis. Well, the sons of a coronavirus victim are criticizing Cuomo's Emmy after the horror show in nursing homes. Yes, he received an Emmy for his press briefings. Victor Davis Hansen says, well, that's not the Babylon Bee, I just want to clarify. But it is 2020, stranger things uh, can and have happened. Victor Davis Hansen says politicizing coronavirus is the reason Americans are skeptical of experts. And Operation Warp Speed projects 70% herd immunity and a potential return to normalcy by May of 2021. Large crowds are still being reported at airports across the nation, although the overall number of travelers is down. Well, two are dead and multiple people were injured in a California knife attack. 
Los Angeles police have reached an unfortunate milestone, more on that later, and a 15-year-old boy is in custody in a mall shooting that injured eight in Wisconsin. A suspect in the deadly Sonic fast food shooting has been ID'd. Pat Quinn, co-creator of the Ice Bucket Challenge, has died at 37 from ALS. And California donors are urging Governor Newsom to fill presumptive Vice President-elect Kamala Harris' Senate seat with a woman of color. Companies aiming to renew dividend payments, a sign of optimism that the worst of COVID is over. Not sure what they're basing that calculation on. A Delta CEO is calling New York-London Traveler Corridor complicated. And COVID-19 shots could reach first Americans by mid-December. Over 670,000 New Yorkers are flying for Thanksgiving despite COVID-19. And Southwest CEO says the 737 MAX crash issues have been easily addressed. That's a quote, easily addressed. Companies have started to dole out cash they hoarded during the pandemic and store shelves are starting to empty again, although they assure us it's not necessary. Well, Trump's legal team has distanced itself from Sidney Powell. Biden's choice for secretary of state has already uh, had a lineup of anti-Semitic left uh, members fuming. Reports are that he chose uh, Anthony Blinken. Rashida Tlaib says so long as he doesn't suppress my First Amendment right to speak out against Netanyahu's racist and inhumane policies, the Palestinian people deserve equality and justice, referring to the appointment of Anthony uh, Blinken, or at least the nomination. GOP, they won the lead uh, to uh, record numbers of women in Congress. Uh, While the majority of women in Congress are Democrats, the story notes at least 35 Republican women are expected to join the 117th Congress, up from 22 in 2018, with some races still too close to call. Carol Maximowitz joked eagerly awaiting their Vanity Fair cover in designer clothing. Yeah, that's probably not going to happen there, Republican women. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Need to take a quick break? And we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Later in the second hour of today's program, we'll talk with Holly Girth. She's the author of The Powerful Purpose of Introverts, Why the World Needs You to Be You. We're winding our way through some of the news stories over the last several days. Black Lives Matters, um, Matter are seeking a meeting with Joe Biden for a commitment to abolish police. From this story in the Daily Wire, despite indications that the defund police movement had a negative impact on Democrats' election success, leaders of BLM are petitioning for a meeting with the incoming Joe Biden, Kamala Harris administration, and demanding that Biden support the BREATHE Act, which includes a roadmap to abolishing law enforcement and a demand for reparations. Shelby Steele, who is himself African-American, points out, we blacks aren't much victimized um, aren't much victimized anymore. Today, we are free to build a life that won't be stunted by racial persecution. Today, we are far more likely to encounter racial preferences than racial discrimination. Moreover, we live in a society that generously shows us goodwill, a society that has uh, isolated uh, racism as its most unforgivable sin. This lack of victimization amounts to an absence of malice that profoundly threatens the victim-focused black identity. Who are we without the malice of racism? Can we be black without being victims? The great dis, um, diminishment, not eradication of racism since the 60s, means that our victim-focused identity has become an anachronism. Well-suited for the past, it strains for relevance in the present. You can read more from him in the Wall Street Journal. Shelby Steele. Well, Los Angeles has reached 300 homicides at a record 
pace. Remember, I mentioned earlier that the uh, police department there reached a remarkable milestone. Uh, There is no mention of police cuts and anti-police riots in the story, but following the riots and demands to defund the police, the city cut the police budget by $150 million. From an L.A. reporter, Bill Malugan, Los Angeles has now crossed 300 homicides for the first time in over a decade, 2009, and the year isn't over yet. 297 going into the weekend, now four more. Homicides are up 25% versus 2019. Shootings up 32% versus 2019. LAPD's elite robbery homicide division now being downsized. Well, Oregon Governor Brown has made national headlines. She's calling on residents to report their neighbors who violate her most recent lockdown. From the story, Oregon Kate Brown wants residents to call the police on their neighbors over violations of the state's latest coronavirus shutdown, which includes a six-person limit on in-home gatherings. The temporary freeze, which went into effect on Wednesday, restricts indoor, at-home, and social gatherings to six people from no more than two households with no exceptions for Thanksgiving dinner get-togethers. China apparently paid newspapers millions of dollars to run fake articles favoring China. They're called advertorials, the article called them, designed to look like legitimate news articles. Well, that's a rather interesting uh, development. Meanwhile, President-elect Joe Biden is facing growing pressure to erase student loan debt on his first day in office as part of a broader coronavirus relief effort, but doing so Uh, Maybe an ineffective way to boost the nation's pandemic-stricken economy, according to a new analysis. Outstanding student loan debt has doubled over the past decade, nearing a staggering $1.7 trillion. About one in six American adults owes money on federal student loan debt, which is the largest amount of non-mortgage debt in the U.S. It's been cited as a major hindrance in people's economic life by Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell. But a recently published report from the Committee for Responsible Budget shows that forgiving all student loan debt would provide just a small bump to the economy, increasing cash flow by about $90 billion per year, even though it would cost close to $1.7 trillion. Boost the economy, $90 billion, cost close to $1.7 trillion. There's no free. A debt has to be paid. The taxpayer would pay it. There are a number of benefits and costs associated with canceling student debt, the report said. But as a stimulus measure, it's uh, bang for buck. Uh, It's far lower than many alternatives under consideration or the COVID relief already enacted. We'll talk more in days ahead about uh, what the cost would be uh, for giving student debt. That's just one brief uh, survey. Well, the United States will pull out of the Open Skies Treaty, an arms control pact with Russia, according to the Department of State, on the 22nd. Um, on May 22nd, 2020, the United States exercised its right pursuant to paragraph two of Article something of the treaty on open skies by providing notice to the treaty dispositaries and to all state parties of its decision to withdraw from the treaty, effective six months from the notification date. State Department Deputy Spokesperson Cale uh, Brown said in a statement, well, six months having elapsed, the United States withdrawal took effect on November 22nd, and the United States is no longer a state party to the treaty on open skies. The Open Skies Treaty is an agreement to allow nations to carry out reconnaissance flyovers to obtain military data and intelligence. For years, the United States has accused Russia of violating the terms of that agreement, not allowing the flights over Russian territory. President Trump earlier this year said that he wanted to leave the agreement, which was signed following the end of the Cold War. It came as Trump and the administration officials stated that they've been tougher on the Kremlin 
than previous administrations. Meanwhile, in a show of support for Israel's sovereignty, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo on Thursday visited Mount Bintel in the Golan Heights, the territory that Israel has controlled since seizing it from Syria during the Six-Day War in 1967. He's the first U.S. Secretary of State to visit that territory. This is a part of Israel, a central part of Israel, he said, during joint statements with Israeli Foreign Minister Gabi Ashkenazi. Well, the Trump administration in 2019 recognized Israeli sovereignty over the territory, though much of the world condemns Israel's claim as an illegal occupation. Israel and the United States maintain the Israeli sovereignty over Golan is justified because it was taken in defense, uh, a defensive war and that it is a crucial part of Israel's national security. Well, a divided federal appeals court on Friday declared unconstitutional two South Florida laws that banned therapists from offering conversion therapy to children struggling with their sexual orientation or gender identity. In a two-to-one decision, the 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals sided with two therapists who said the laws in the city of Boca Raton and Palm Beach County violated their free speech rights. Circuit Judge Britt Grant said that while enjoining the laws allowing free speech that many find concerning, even dangerous, the First Amendment does not allow communities to determine how their neighbors may be counseled about matters of sexual orientation or gender. Well, conversion therapy, which is sort of a made-up term that's supposed to disparage um, counseling for those who seek to change their orientation, aims to change people's orientation at their request or their gender identity. The therapists, Robert Otto and Julia Hamilton, said that their clients typically had sincerely held religious beliefs conflicting with homosexuality and sought counseling to conform their identities and behaviors with those beliefs. Republican President um, Donald Trump appointed both judges in Friday's majority opinion. Well, Trump's campaign appealed to Pennsylvania, a judge, uh, uh, their decision to dismiss their lawsuit that seeks to delay certifying election results and also requested a second Georgia recount. President Trump is running out of time as key states are set to certify a Biden victory. And Joe Biden has named Anthony Blinken as secretary of state. Ilhan Omar is suggesting Biden reverse Trump's Middle East agreements. Despite the CDC and her health news, uh, travel warnings, one million travelers have passed through U.S. airports as of Friday. That number will continue to go up. And AstraZeneca says its vaccine, the third major prospect, is highly effective. We'll talk about that later in the program, compare the three at the top of the list, making their vaccines available in the near term. And on Operation Warp Speed Advisor expects vaccines to ship mid-December with herd immunity by May. The FDA has granted emergency authorization of antibody treatment be given to Donald Trump. Mike Pompeo met uh, Taliban leaders ahead of the planned U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. And a foreign minister says Saudi Arabia should be a partner of any future nuclear deal with Iran. The U.S. has officially pulled out of the Open Skies Treaty. And the State Department says anti-American educators undermine efforts to counter China. Kyle Rittenhouse, the teenager who went to Wisconsin with a rifle and killed two rioters, made bail. And a 15-year-old has been charged in connection with the Wisconsin mall shooting that injured eight. Weekend violence in Chicago continues to rise. And Chicago's governor exempts the entertainment industry from COVID restrictions. Not so. Now we have political exceptions. The elite are, have exceptions in those who are popular. So if you fit into one of those categories, apparently you have no concerns at all about COVID-19. Exempted Hollywood. Golden State sheriffs tell uh, Governor Newsom that they won't enforce his curfew. And Nevada's governor issued a three-week statewide pause as COVID cases surge there. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
Back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're working our way through some of the news over the last several days. Well, no joke, Andrew Cuomo will receive an Emmy for his coronavirus TV briefings. Wow. Dutch doctors can now spike grandma's drink so that she can't change her mind about assisted suicide. Of course, you don't have to worry. That could never happen here, right? Well, a federal court struck down a Florida conversion therapy ban and an appeals court has ruled a Tennessee um, that Tennessee rather can outlaw abortions based on sex, race and disability. Well, on this day in history, 1889, the first jukebox makes its debut in San Francisco at the Palace Royal Saloon. The coin operated device consists of four listening tubes attached to an Edison phonograph. 1889. On this day in history, 1963, President Lyndon Baines Johnson proclaims November 25th, a day of national mourning following the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. 1971, the People's Republic of China is seated in the U.N. Security Council. And on this day in history, 2000, in a setback for Al Gore, the Florida Supreme Court refuses to order Miami-Dade officials to resume hand-counting its Election Day ballots. Meanwhile, Gore's lawyers argue in a brief filed with the U.S. Supreme Court that the high court should stay out of the Florida election controversy. That was on this day in history, so it's not unprecedented that Donald Trump would continue to challenge the outcome of this election. Certification is required by early December, and the clock is ticking. On this day in history, 2004, Dan Rather announces he will step down as principal anchorman of the CBS Evening News in March of 2005. Now, for those of you who are younger, you have no idea the significant um, role that he played as the the nation's newsman. Agree or disagree, he was uh, at least earlier on, uh, on in his career, was quite a significant voice all across the country. Well, as mentioned, AstraZeneca and Oxford said Monday that their vaccine was as much as 90 percent effective in preventing COVID-19, marking the latest candidate to inch closer toward approval. In a press release that was posted early today, the company said there were no hospitalizations or severe cases of disease in trial participants who uh, received the vaccine. In the trial, the one dosing regimen of AZD1222 got promising results when it was split into two jabs dated one month apart. The efficacy went from 90% down to 62% when two full doses were given one month apart, which is rather interesting. An independent data safety monitoring board determined that the analysis met its primary endpoint, showing protection from COVID-19 occurred 14 days or more after receiving two doses of the vaccine. The, the firms said in the press release, no serious safety events related to the vaccine have been confirmed, AZD-1222. Well, the company will now prepare to submit the data for emergency approval so that the vaccine can be used to combat the out the uh, ongoing coronavirus pandemic. This marks the third such company to do so. Well, taking a look at the potential uh, coronavirus vaccine candidates that are inching toward emergency use authorization, let's begin with AstraZeneca and the University of Oxford. They showed up to 90 percent uh, effective uh, rate in preventing COVID-19 disease in their large clinical trials given in two jabs, I guess one dose given in two rather than two full doses. Uh, they developed uh, using replication deficient chimpanzee viral vector based on a, a weakened version of uh, an adenovirus uh, that causes infections in chimpanzees and contains the genetic material of SARS-CoV-2 virus spike protein. Now, for most of us, that means very little. Some of you know precisely what that means. The vaccine can be stored at 30 
6 to 46 degrees Fahrenheit for at least six months. And companies project to make up to 3 billion doses of the vaccine in 2021. 3 billion. The status, they're preparing to submit data for emergency use authorization. Now, Pfizer and BioNTech's BNT162B2 showed to be 95% effective in preventing COVID-19 in large clinical trials given in two jab regimen. As developed using mRNA technology, the vaccine must be stored at 94 degrees Fahrenheit. Companies project to make up to 50 million doses in 2020 and up to 1.3 billion doses in 2021. Uh, They're awaiting possible emergency use authorization. So they've already submitted uh, the uh, request. And then there's Moderna, uh, the mRNA-1273. They showed up to 94.5% effective in preventing COVID-19 disease in large clinical trials given in two jabs. Uh, Developed using mRNA technology, the vaccine can be stored at 28 degrees Fahrenheit for up to one month. The company projects to make 20 million doses this year and up to 1 billion doses in 2021. And the status there, they're preparing to submit data for emergency use authorization. So thus far, only Pfizer BioNTech has actually submitted the request, uh, but Moderna is preparing to submit their data for emergency use authorization. So... um, We'll continue that story to find out when those authorizations are or if they're approved. Meanwhile, the Georgia Secretary of State certified the state's 2020 presidential election results on Friday, officially declaring President-elect Joe Biden the winner of the state's uh, state's 16 electoral votes. As reported uh, earlier on Thursday, the results were determined after the state conducted an audit involving a fully manual count uh, of nearly 5 million votes cast by residents. Georgia's results on Friday showed Biden with a 0.25% lead over Trump, which is equal to about 12,670 votes. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp will now have to certify the state's slate of 16 presidential electors by 5 p.m. on Saturday, but the Trump campaign has two days to request a recount because the margins are so close. During the 2016 election cycle, Trump defeated Democratic challenger Hillary Clinton by a margin of 5% in Georgia. The last time the state voted for a Democratic candidate in the presidential election was 1992 when former President Bill Clinton won. President Trump's legal team on Sunday filed an appeal to a federal judge's ruling that struck down his campaign's efforts to block the certification of votes in Pennsylvania. The appeal, which was filed to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit, comes just a day after U.S. Middle District Judge Matthew Brand in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, rejected a request by the Trump 2020 campaign for an injunction that would stop the certification of the election as the campaign seeks to overturn results in swing states across the country. Plaintiffs ask this court to disenfranchise almost six million voters, Brand the judge said on Saturday. This court has been unable to find any case in which a plaintiff has sought such a drastic remedy in the contest of an election in terms of the sheer volume of votes asked to be invalidated. One might expect that when seeking such a startling outcome, a plaintiff would come formidably armed with compelling legal arguments and factual proof of rampant corruption such that this court would have no option but to regrettably grant the proposed injunctive relief despite the impact it would have on such large group of citizens, he added. Well, the president argued that the Constitution's guarantee of equal protection under the law was violated by the state when counties took different measures to inform voters of technological issues that arose with the unprecedented number of mail-in ballots. 
Well, Alan Dershowitz, who is a Harvard law professor emeritus, said that he thinks President Donald Trump has several legal paths to a 2020 election victory. He stands in a very small group who hold that view. Dershowitz said there are few, there are a few constitutional paths to victory for the president's legal team, although he noted that Trump will face legal hurdles in all of them. For example, in Pennsylvania, they have two very strong legal arguments, one that the courts changed what the legislature did about counting ballots after the end of the election day. That's a winning issue in the Supreme Court. I don't necessarily support it, but it's a winning issue in the Supreme Court, he said. Well, the team, meanwhile, has a winning issue in the Supreme Court on equal protection that some counties allowed flawed ballots to be cured while others did not. Bush versus Gore suggests that an equal protection argument can prevail. Dershowitz, who helped defend Trump during the Senate impeachment trial earlier this year, said that because of Democratic candidate Joe Biden's lead over the president, Trump's team may not be able to uh, contest enough ballots in Pennsylvania. The other legal theory they have, which is a potentially strong one, is that the computers, either fraudulently or by glitches, changed hundreds of thousands of votes. There are enough votes to make a difference, but I haven't seen the evidence to support that, Dershowitz went on to say. So in one case, they don't have the numbers. In another case, they don't seem yet to have the evidence. Maybe they do. I haven't seen it. But the legal theory is there uh, to support them if they have the numbers and they have the evidence. However, time is running out uh, for the president's legal team. He said you need to have uh, witness experts uh, subject uh, to cross uh, to cross examination, excuse me, finding uh, by the court, uh, adding that there is no legal route to undoing that after the election is certified. Their strongest case, if they have um, the evidence, is that computers may have turned hundreds of thousands of votes. Now, we heard from Dominion earlier suggesting that that's not possible. It didn't happen. But the challenge continues. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in the second hour of today's program, we'll hear from Holly Girth. She's the author of The Powerful Purpose of Introverts, Why the World Needs You to Be You. That's coming up in the five o'clock hour. Well, presumptive President-elect Joe Biden on Monday announced a number of key cabinet appointments, including Anthony Blinken, uh, Secretary of State, Alejandro Mayorkas as Secretary of Homeland Security, Avril Haines to serve as the first woman to lead the intelligence community, among other positions. On Monday, he also announced former Secretary of State John Kerry as Special Presidential Envoy for Climate and will sit on the National Security Council, the first time that the NSC uh, will include an official dedicated to climate change. Biden also announced that Jake Sullivan will serve as White House National Security Advisor, making him one of the youngest people to serve in the role in decades. And Linda Thomas-Greenfield, who will be nominated as United Nations Ambassador. We have uh, no time to lose when it comes to our national security and foreign policy. I need a team ready on day one to help me reclaim America's seat at the head of the table, rally the world to meet the biggest challenges we face, and advance our security, prosperity, and values. This is the crux of that team, Biden said in a statement. These individuals are equally as experienced and crisis-tested as they are innovative and imaginative, end quote. He went on to add that their accomplishments in diplomacy are unmatched, but they also reflect the idea that we cannot meet the profound challenges of this new moment with old thinking and unchanged habits or without diversity of background and perspective. It's why I've selected them. Vice President Kamala, uh, presumptive Vice President-elect 
Kamala Harris also praised the appointments, calling them crisis-tested national security and foreign policy leaders. With knowledge and expertise to keep our country safe and restore and advance America's leadership around the world. I uh, learned later in the, uh, the, the morning that President-elect, uh, presumptive President-elect Joe Biden is set to tap former Federal Reserve Chairwoman Janet Yellen First Treasury Secretary in his administration, the Wall Street Journal reported, Yellen is 74, became the first woman to head the central bank after her Senate confirmation in 2014 and would also be the first female Treasury Secretary should she be confirmed to the cabinet position. Democrats hope some members of the Senate's Republican majority will vote to confirm her a less progressive choice than other names that were floated for the position, including Senator Elizabeth Warren. Yellen would take over the Treasury as the economy fights to recover from the economic devastation of the coronavirus pandemic, or at least the strictures placed on the economy by the leaders in response to the virus. Job growth began to bounce back after the spring as lockdown restrictions were lifted and businesses opened up. But with a new wave of coronavirus infections hitting large swaths of the country and new social distancing rules in some states, the economic recovery is expected to suffer. I thought it was rather interesting that Fred Lucas, writing for the Daily Signal, came up with seven ways the 2005 Carter-Baker report could have averted problems that we're seeing in 2020, the election. Now, this is uh, going back quite uh, quite a ways, but it's rather interesting. He points out that they called on states to increase voter ID requirements, to be leery of mail-in voting, to halt ballot harvesting, to maintain voter lists in part to ensure dead people are promptly removed from them to allow election observers to monitor ballot counting and to make sure voting machines are working properly. They also wanted the media to refrain from calling elections too early and from touting exit polls. All of this may sound eerily similar to the issues in the prolonged presidential election battle this year, but these were among the 87 recommendations from the 2005 report of the Bipartisan Commission on Federal Election Reform, known informally as the Carter-Baker Commission. Well, the Bipartisan Commission's co-chairmen were a former Democratic presidential Jim, uh, president, rather Jimmy Carter, and former Secretary of State James Baker, a Republican, who served in the George Herbert Walker Bush administration. Well, the commission was created to address voting and election integrity issues raised by the tumultuous 36-day post-election battle of 2000, which was settled by the U.S. Supreme Court decision that resulted in awarding Florida's 25 electoral votes and the presidency to Republican George W. Bush over Democrat Al Gore. Well, had Congress and state governments adopted many of the panel's recommendations, the 2020 post-election mess between President Trump and uh, former Vice President Joe Biden might have been avoided. So says the Carter-Baker Commission member, Kate Cole James, now the president of the Heritage Foundation. So many of the problems uh, we are now hearing about in the aftermath of the 2020 election could have been avoided had states heeded the advice of the Commission on Federal Election Reform. Sadly, they did not. She went on to say, and again, she was a member of that, um, that panel, simple projections against fraud like voter ID and updated voter registration lists make perfect sense if we truly believe that every vote must count. Election officials should take another look at the commission's recommendations and make sure they're doing everything possible to protect the integrity of our elections. Now, several state legislatures did adopt aspects of the recommendations, particularly voter ID proposals. However, Congress reportedly was unenthusiastic about the report. Major media outlets have called the uh, race for Biden, but election litigation is still playing out in the courts and voters uh, rather votes are still being counted. 
70% of Republicans, however, do not believe the 2020 election was free and fair, according to political Morling Consult poll. Before the election, just 35% of Republicans didn't believe the election would be free and fair. The shift was different among Democrats, where uh, 95% believed the election was free and fair afterward, compared to 52% who said the same before the election. Uh, well, again, some of the um, recommendations from the panel Voter IDs. With the vast expansion of mail-in voting this year, voter ID requirements were less likely. Today's states have a patchwork of voter ID laws with 36 states either requiring or requesting voters to present identification at the polls, according to the National Conference of State Legislatures. Uh, The conference says only six states have strict photo ID requirements. That's Georgia, Indiana, Kansas, Mississippi, Tennessee, and Wisconsin. The Carter-Baker Commission called for voter ID standards nationwide in its report. Mail-in and absentee ballots uh, were suspect uh, and identified, or at least um, referenced in the report. In a brief filing supporting the Trump campaign's Pennsylvania litigation over the mail-in ballots, a group of Republican state attorneys general, they referenced the Carter-Baker Commission report, among other items regarding mail-in voting and ballot harvesting. Well, the 2020 uh, election trends uh, seemed to shift dramatically as mail-in votes were counted. Further, many questions have emerged about the point, the point of origin for those ballots. Specifically, the, po- the report rather called on states to prohibit third parties or political operatives from collecting ballots, a practice commonly known as ballot harvesting. The report uh, stated absentee ballots remain the largest source of potential voter fraud. Also in the report, avoiding duplicate registrations across state lines. In Nevada, the Trump campaign asserts that there were potentially thousands of out-of-state votes cast in one of the most closely contested states. The Carter-Baker Commission report called for states to make it easier to track registered voters who move from one state to another to reduce duplication of registration. The report states invalid voter files which contain ineligible, duplicate, fictional, or deceased voters are an invitation to fraud. The report also addressed election observers for integrity. Well, in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Nevada, Republicans have complained that qualified elections observers have been prohibited from watching the counting. Well, the Carter-Baker Commission report stressed the need for election observers to maintain the integrity of the ballot. All legitimate domestic and international election observers should be granted unrestricted access to the election process, provided that they accept election rules, do not interfere with the election process, and respect the secrecy of the ballot, the report said. They also addressed reliable voting machines, saying that voting machines have also been significant, a significant issue in the 2020 race, particularly in Michigan, as one county um, uh, there flipped from Biden to Trump after a hand recount showed the machine could be inaccurate. The Carter-Baker Commission suggested that machines print out paper receipts for voters to verify their vote was accurately counted. States should adopt unambiguous procedures to reconcile any disparity between the electronic ballot tally and the paper ballot tally. They also called on uh, the media to stop calling elections early. On election night, uh, Fox News Channel was the first to call the state of Arizona for Biden, prompting outrage in the Trump camp. Major media outlets have projected Biden to have won the election, even as vote counting and litigation continue. The 2005 commission report addressed problems with the media, suggesting news outlets voluntarily offer candidates free airtime and also show restraint in calling a state for one candidate or another. The First Amendment would prevent any such rule from being mandatory, but it certainly would be helpful. And finally, the 2005 Carter-Baker Commission report suggested that federal and state prosecutors should more aggressively monitor vote fraud. 
In July and even number years, the U.S. Department of Justice should issue a public report on its investigations of election fraud, the report said. That has failed to be the case. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a moment after news and traffic at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us this afternoon. Uh, today, James Blind is producing today's program, and uh, Clark Hilton Engineering, Dan Rice, has given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. And uh, we'll be talking with Holly Girth. She's the author of The Powerful Purpose of Introverts, Why the World Needs You to Be You. It's really a very informative book if you want to understand what it means to be an introvert as opposed to an extrovert. And I think you'll find a lot of surprising information. I know I did. And by the way, I would categorize myself as an introvert. Well, days before Thanksgiving, Oregon Governor Kate Brown, who's made national news headlines, says she believes residents who know their neighbors are violating the most recent round of COVID-19 protocols, which includes capping the number of people allowed in your home at six, should call the police. Suddenly, I guess she favors calling the police. This is no different, she says, than what happens if there's a party down the street and it's keeping everyone awake. Although a Thanksgiving meal is not keeping everyone awake. They're not disturbing the peace, if you will. But she did say, what uh, What do neighbors do in that case? They call law enforcement because it's too noisy. This is what, uh, this is just like that. It's like a violation of a noise ordinance or disturbing the peace probably would have been a better reference. But nonetheless, the restrictions known as a freeze were implemented this week via an executive order by the governor for the next two weeks, as you probably know, in Oregon and four weeks in Multnomah County. Residents are banned from eating out at restaurants and going to the gym. Among other restrictions, social gatherings in our homes are also limited to no more than six people. Violators could face up to 30 days in jail. $1,250 in fines or both. Now, just to set the record straight, there will be six individuals in my household for Thanksgiving. The two separate households will be separated from one another by some distance at the Thanksgiving table. Just wanted to clarify that. There's no need to call law enforcement. They might need to be available to break up some other um, demonstration somewhere else in the city. Well, critics of the fee, the freeze rather, have called it unconstitutional. Clackamas County Chair-elect Tootie Smith said uh, that the freeze made Oregonians second-rate slaves in their own homes. Well, on Friday, the Marion County Sheriff's Office said in a statement, we recognize that we cannot arrest or enforce our way out of this pandemic, and we believe uh, both are counterproductive to public health goals. In other words, we ain't going to enforce this thing. Look, all of this is uh, irresponsible. Uh, Brown said in a statement to those criticisms, these are politicians seeking headlines, not public servants trying to save lives. Wow, she's saving lives. My top priority as governor is to keep Oregonians healthy and safe. That's where I'm focused. And clearly we are incapable of making decisions on our own in our own best interest. So, you know, tell us what shoe to put each uh, what foot to put each shoe on. Well, the governor said Friday she her uh, promotion uh, is an education first model and she hopes enforcement won't be needed, although she's uh, encouraging neighbors to rat on neighbors, but she is uh, employing the option in the state of Oregon. This is about saving lives and it's about protecting our fellow Oregonians and clearly without her spelling out how that should um, be done, we would just lumber around unsure. Well, I don't know, should we eat the same pork at Turkey Day or what, what should we do? Anyway, we have too many sporadic cases in Oregon, she said. We can't Uh, trace these cases to a particular source. We have to limit gathering and social interactions. 
Uh, in its daily COVID-19 briefing on Friday, the Oregon Health Authority reported a record high of 1,300 new cases of the virus statewide. Justice Samuel Alito said the coronavirus pandemic has resulted in previously unimaginable restrictions on individual liberty and warned that religious liberty is in danger of becoming a second class right. Well, his comments came during his virtual keynote speech to a conference of the Conservative Federalist Society in which the 70 year old justice warned that the U.S. can't allow the restrictions on personal liberty to continue after the pandemic has ended, noting that houses of worship have been treated particularly unfairly. Nevada was unable to provide any justification for treating casinos more favorably than other houses of worship, he said, referring to a recent Supreme Court case in which the case rejected a request by a church to block state restrictions that subjected houses of worship to a 50-person limit while allowing casinos to operate at 50% of their um, fire code capacities. Religious liberty is in danger of becoming a second-class right, he said, expressing concern about free speech and the Second Amendment as well. Alito, a nominee of former President George W. Bush, who was confirmed by the Senate in 2006, said that while there was hostility toward unfashionable views before the pandemic, free speech is now particularly endangered on campuses and at some corporations. You can't say that marriage is a union between one man and one woman, Alito said, until very recently. That's what the vast majority of Americans thought. Now it's considered bigotry. Tolerance for opposing views is now in short supply. Alito said particularly in law schools and the broader academic community. He said a number of recent law school graduates have claimed they face harassment and retaliation for any views that go against law school orthodoxy. In certain quarters, religious liberty has fast become a disfavored right, he said. For many today, religious liberty is not a cherished freedom. It's often just an excuse for bigotry and it can't be tolerated even when there's no evidence that anybody has been harmed. Well, he spoke about the Little Sisters of the Poor, an order of Roman Catholic nuns who are exempted from a requirement to provide birth control coverage to employees. Their case came before the Supreme Court, though none of the employees had asked for birth control coverage. He also cited the case of a Colorado baker who was allowed to refuse service to a gay couple for their wedding. The couple in question was given a free cake by another shop and was defended by celebrity chefs. Well, the question we face is whether our society will be inclusive enough to tolerate people with unpopular religious beliefs, he said, adding that Christians deserve the same protections as any other religious minority groups. Well, the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association is asking a federal judge to block the governor's two-week freeze that prohibits indoor-outdoor dining in restaurants in response to a rising number of coronavirus cases. The association, which represents 10,000 food service and 2,000 lodging businesses across the state, argues the new restrictions will cause devastating effects for their members and their employees. Well, the association, along with the public policy group Restaurant Law Center, filed a lawsuit in U.S. District Court in Portland on Friday, two days after the governor's new executive order took effect in less than a week before Thanksgiving. Well, the governor's freeze expected to last at least through the 2nd of December limits social get-togethers to no more than six. Well, you know pretty much the capacity. It also limits grocery stores and retail malls to a maximum of 75% capacity while encouraging curbside pickup. When issuing the freeze, Brown acknowledged it will be difficult for everyone. We are trying to stop this ferocious virus from spreading even more quickly and far and wide and to save lives, she says. As of Thursday, there have been 60,873 cases and 808 deaths from the virus. The suit alleges that the governor's orders violates due process and equal protection and that Brown has exceeded her power in issuing it. 
The association urges a judge to grant a temporary injunction that would bar uh, the order's enforcement uh, in whole or in part while the case is pending. Leaders of the association and the law center said that they hope the governor and her staff will work with them to develop a more reasonable and pragmatic approach, according to the release. Uh, We hope to engage in communication with Governor Kate Brown and her professional staff as soon as possible to work toward a resolution that has not been available to us at this stage. That's a quote from Jason Brandt, who's the president of the Restaurant Association. The number one priority of America's restaurant industry is to provide a safe and healthy environment for guests and employees. The executive director of the Restaurant Law Center says the industry is following applicable federal, state and local operating guidelines and where necessary, adopting or rather adapted their business models and adopted countless new measures to ensure that diners and workers remain safe. A blanket ban on indoor and outdoor dining is wrong, and we believe the latest executive order in Oregon is also legal. We'll continue to follow that story. Uh, Just to put into perspective, though, old spaghetti factory sales are anticipated to drop to about $170,000 a week. That's a week from $350,000 a week last year. Uh, This doesn't pay the bills long term. uh, The owner says if we close again for all sales, uh, we will not be able to reopen without significant support. So some of our neighbors are really struggling in the midst of all of that. Finally, House Speaker Tina Kotek called on Governor Brown to issue a first-of-its-kind catastrophic emergency declaration that would allow lawmakers to meet remotely. Oregon could mark a dubious milestone next month, the first catastrophic legislative session in state history. Now, just a caveat, I think we've had plenty of catastrophic legislative sessions, but I think they might mean something different by it than I mean. I'm talking about the outcome they're referring to, how they meet. Anyway, I digress. With COVID-19 cases rising rapidly and a list of pressing concerns from housing stability to lingering wildfire damage, top lawmakers last week signaled potential support to try out a never-used piece of the state's constitution. Under that provision, Governor Brown can declare a catastrophic disaster then convene a special legislative session under looser rules than lawmakers normally have to abide by. Lawmakers likely would not be required to appear in the Capitol for such a session, eliminating concern about spreading the virus. The House and Senate also could operate without a two-thirds quorum of lawmakers in attendance, which might be uh, dangerous for taxpayers in Oregon. That's a very different arrangement than special sessions held in June and August, in which lawmakers were required to come to Salem to pass bills. Well, voters approved this catastrophic disaster provision in 2012 with an eye toward a massive earthquake and resulting tsunami. But House Speaker Tina Kotek said on Wednesday that COVID-19 is just as valid a reason. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. And when we do, Holly Girth, my guest, the powerful purpose of introverts, why the world needs you to be you. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest, Holly Girth, is a Wall Street Journal bestselling author. She's a life coach and a counselor. She sold over 500,000 books. She's co-founded the groundbreaking blogging community, Encourage, and now she co-hosts the popular podcast, More Than Small Talk. Holly is also an introvert. Now, you might be asking yourself, how is that possible? Well, you may be surprised to learn that Joanna Gaines, Abraham Lincoln, Albert Einstein, Oprah, Jerry Seinfeld, C.S. Lewis, and others are also 
In fact, half the population are also introverts. Well, in her latest book, The Powerful Purpose of Introverts, she shares what you need to know from brain science to the psychological, relational, and spiritual aspects of being an introvert. She also reveals exactly what will will help introverts uh, beat their struggles and maximize their strengths so that they can live with clarity, courage, and confidence in a world that needs what only they can give. Well, I'm delighted to have her with us to talk about her latest book. Um, And again, the title of that book, The Powerful Purpose of Introverts, Why the World Needs You to Be You. Holly, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I think before we begin, perhaps we should define what we mean by introvert. What does it mean to be an introvert and why does it matter? Well, being an introvert isn't about small talk or how much we like people or anything like that. It's actually about how our brains and nervous systems are wired. So introverts are wired in a way that means they prefer a less stimulating external environment. So they're at their best when less is coming at them. So when they're able to do things like fully focus on a project they're passionate about, have a meaningful conversation with one person, take time in their day for reflection, And so it really is more about how we engage with our environment than any of the other stereotypes we sometimes hear. So why is it important for us to identify either as an extrovert or an introvert in order that we can harness our strengths and perform to the top of our our capability? Because I think introverts and extroverts are actually a complementary pairing. You see that a lot in the creation story, day and night, land and sea, masculine, feminine. I think another one is introvert and extrovert. And so when both types understand who they are and use their strengths, then the world just works better because there are things that extroverts bring that we need and there are things that introverts bring that we need. And it also helps us to be aware of our weaknesses. And so that's why I think being aware of which one you are, even though we're actually all on a continuum, none Mm -hmm. of us are 100% introvert or extrovert, but knowing where you land can be really helpful. I was talking to my producer just a moment ago. He said he was an omnivert. Is that, a, is that now a, a popular term <laughs> to suggest that you have a little bit of everything? Yes. Well, your producer might not like my position on this. But <laughs> I tend to say, uh, you know, the ambivert, omnivert, I think we really are one or the other, even though we land somewhere on a continuum. Like I mentioned, they've done studies with people from infants infancy through adulthood and these characteristics are present and so it's kind of like being right or left-handed so Uh all of us use our right and left hands all day every day but there's one that's naturally stronger and we rely on more so I think that's what it's like being introvert and extrovert and we usually do actually land in one or the other I think you'll be proud to know that I held that position as he and I had a conversation on the subject (laughs) because of the powerful purpose of introverts. So (laughs) I appreciate that. Um, Now, we might imagine that extroverts are the movers and the shakers. Introverts are the quiet people who sit in the corner and watch things happen. You make the point, and I appreciate the familiar names that you also provide of introverts. You make the point that once you recognize your strengths and put them to good use, uh, that an introvert is all of those things and more. Yes, we have some strengths. Even a 10-year leadership study actually found that introvert CEOs were slightly more likely to outperform the expectations of their boards and investors. And that might sound surprising, but introverts just have a different style of leadership. It often looks like listening first, getting behind people or projects or causes they believe in. 
but it's very effective. And same with relationships. Introverts and extroverts are equally social, just differently social. So introverts may have a smaller circle, but deeper relationships. And so just appreciating that even if introverts aren't always as visible, what we contribute is just as valuable, can be a turning point. When did you first realize that you're an introvert? I first heard that word in college. I was at a campus ministry meeting and they had a guest speaker talking about personality and he said introvert. And it was like a light bulb went on that not only was there a name for my way of engaging in the world, I was far from the only one who did it. As you mentioned before, half the population is made up of introverts. So for a long time, I only knew one side of the story of introversion, that I didn't let small talk, things like that. But I didn't know this whole other story of the strengths and gifts. And when I started digging into that as a life coach and counselor, I wanted everyone to know the other side of the story, too. Yeah, yeah. And you touched on um, the uh, physically wired differences between introversion and extroversion. Um, How does one determine that they are one or the other? Can you explain from a scientific point of view and perhaps just a personal discovery point of view? Yeah, so I'll give you a really quick summary of the brain science behind it. Extroverts feel best through a neurotransmitter called dopamine that operates kind of like caffeine, revs us up, prepares us for action, released when a lot's coming at us from the outside. So introverts naturally have a level of dopamine that feels pretty good to us. So a lot more coming at us is like a whole pot of coffee, maybe exciting at first, but eventually exhausting. And we feel best through a different neurotransmitter, acetylcholine, that I say works more like herbal tea. So it's released when we do things like turn inward, focus deeply, have that meaningful conversation, some of the things I mentioned before. So that's one difference. And then we have two sides to our nervous system, sympathetic and parasympathetic. One revs us up, one relaxes us. You can guess which goes with which type. And then I find it fascinating that we even use different primary brain pathways for processing. So introverts use a longer, more complex brain pathway. Extroverts use one that's shorter, faster, more focused on the present. So that shows up, especially in conversation. So if you are someone who enjoys having time for reflection, likes to be able to focus deeply on projects or people who is just at their best when there's not a lot coming at you all the time, you're likely to be an introvert. If on the other hand, you're like, bring it on more, more, more. If you're the one leaving the party saying, where are we going next? Then you're likely to be an extrovert. And again, we're all on a continuum. So we have some of both, but in general, that's one thing that you can look for. Yeah, that's very helpful. And I should also point out that the book, The Powerful Purpose of Introverts, isn't just for those who would identify as introverts, but this is very helpful for the rest of the population as well to understand their counterpart on that continuum, uh, how to understand, work with, and encourage and inspire those who fit into that category. You say that what we see as a struggle in the um, category of introverts can actually be the biggest strength. Can you explain what you mean? Because I think when you think about introverts, not you, but generally when people think about introverts, we tend to imagine that there are more deficits. How can the things that introverts struggle with actually become their biggest strengths? Yeah, well, I think for all of us, if you picture the core characteristics of who we are at the center of a continuum, like for introverts, that would be our more sensitive nervous system, which takes a lot in. On the left side of that continuum, it might be labeled struggle, and that's where things that introverts tend to struggle with, like anxiety, 
might reside, then on the far right of that continuum, it would be labeled strength. And that's where things like empathy, being perceptive and observant live. And so for introverts, it's not about changing who we are, saying I need to be more like extroverts, but instead understanding the strengths that come with our wiring and moving toward them and having strategies to move away from those struggles. And so that's really what I wanted to communicate. And you can do the same thing, put an extrovert characteristic, that more active nervous system. On the left side, it might look like anger. And on the right side, it might look like passion. And so just understanding for all of us that who we are is intentionally designed. And it's not about being someone else. It's about learning to maximize who God made us. Once again, we're talking about the book, The Powerful Purpose of Introverts, Why the World Needs You to Be You. Holly Gerth is my guest. We'll continue our conversation in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Holly Gerth. She is a Wall Street Journal um, best-selling author. She's a life coach and counselor with the Master of Science degree in mental health. She's also an introvert, and her book is titled The Powerful Purpose of Introverts, Why the World Needs You to Be You. Now, it's it's easy to understand why introverts might feel pressure to convert to being extroverts, which is contrary to their wiring. Although, as you described earlier in our conversation, we're all on a continuum. You write about the importance of self-awareness and how crucial that is to our uh, ability to thrive. What tools have you seen that help with self-awareness so that we can maximize the gifts that we do have? Yeah, well, we all approach life from one of three perspectives self-criticism, which is we're hard on ourselves, wrestle with insecurity, self-focus, which takes us into pride and thinking life's all about us, and self-awareness is in the middle, and it's understanding who we're created to be so that we can use the gifts placed within us to serve, and so self-awareness gets confused with selfishness sometimes, but it's Mm -hmm. actually the opposite. It's preparation for service, so I love tools like the Myers-Briggs, the Enneagram, the Love Languages, Things like that that just give us a common language to talk about our strengths and weaknesses. I think that can be powerful. And the more we're aware of ourselves, the more appreciative we are of others as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Self-awareness is crucial to thriving. You share nine specific strengths of introverts, the first one being strategic solitude. And and by the way, I love the the titles to each one of your chapters. Um, How is solitude different than simply being alone? And how how is strategic solitude uh, what we should strive for? But what are these these, uh, specific strengths of introverts? Yeah, so solitude and isolation tend to get confused. Isolation is living disconnected from God, others, and our truest selves. When God said it's not good for man to be alone, the root word is isolation. And we can be isolated even in a crowd. It's more about our souls than our physical circumstances. And so solitude, in contrast, is choosing physical time apart for a specific purpose, like rest, reflection, creativity, prayer, all these things that fill us back up so that we can go out and live a more connected, engaged life. So the end result is connection, even though we're pulling back for a while to have that time. And so research has shown for introverts and extroverts, solitude is essential. 
and especially for those in leadership. So I recommend people schedule solitude like they would an important meeting. An introvert probably needs more than an extrovert, but we all need it. Or if life's too crazy, just have a rhythm of solitude. Like Joanna Gaines, you mentioned, is an introvert, Mm -hmm. and she just sits in her car for five minutes before any new event. And that is her rhythm of solitude. And so I think that is a real strength that introverts can bring to our culture. It strengthens us personally, but it also gives others permission to take the solitude they need as well. Another of the strengths that you write about is meaningful connection, not just connection, but meaningful connection. This is, again, a strength of the introvert. Can you tell us a bit about it? Yes, because of our brain uh, brain pathway processing that I mentioned before, we do tend to want to go deeper in relationships. And we are in an environment where we're told that a relationship is about quantity over quality. And that's not satisfying for anyone, not even extroverts. But I think introverts who lean into that ability to build meaningful relationships tend to thrive. And we also help others around us do that too. And so taking the pressure off and saying, it's not about the number of people in my life or my Facebook followers or whatever it is that we're using to measure Mm -hmm. ourselves, but instead, how can I go deep with a few people? And then that often has a ripple effect to many more. You also list among those strengths, sacred confidence. Uh, Again, I think people tend to imagine that introverts are something like shrinking violets who have little confidence. Uh, Talk about the strength of sacred confidence in the introvert and how that can help an individual thrive. Yeah, well, first, I just want to touch on shyness is not introversion. When you say shrinking violet, that's really describing shyness, which is Mm -hmm. based on fear. Extroverts can be shy as well. That's actually very different than being an introvert because being an introvert isn't about fear. It's about that wiring. And so sacred confidence in particular means embracing who God made us. And for a lot of introverts, that looks like saying it's okay if sometimes traditional church activities, big church services, serving on committees, joining small groups, going on mission trips, all these things, if we don't fully feel like they fit us sometimes, that's okay. It's okay if we feel closer to God when we're in nature or talking to one person or that it looks different. And I hear from a lot of introverts that that's a struggle. So I think for all of us, just pausing and saying, when do I feel most connected to God? How can I have more of that in my life? And then when I'm in circumstances that maybe are a little challenging for me because of my wiring, how can I adapt? Like I carry earplugs with me basically everywhere I go (laughs) in a journal and some things, even to church. And so I think sacred confidence is saying who I am is not only okay, it's intentional And I can receive that and walk in sacred confidence. Another strength introverts uh, of introverts that you mentioned is genuine influence. How have influence and leadership changed in the world and how do introverts fit into that changing world? So influence used to look like a pyramid where someone at the top had influence through position or power. But social media and other things have flattened that. So influence more works like a web where someone in the center has meaningful connections that then ripple out like we were just talking about. So introverts actually thrive with that kind of influence. And if you think about the people who are most influential in your life, the answer is likely to be a parent, a coach, a manager, 
someone has taken an interest in you, not necessarily the loudest, most visible, most outwardly successful person, but the person who is truly committed to making you successful. And that's what introverts often do in leadership. They get behind someone or behind a company, behind a cause, and they champion it until it is successful. And so just understanding that extroverts, absolutely, they make great leaders too for different reasons, but introverts lead equally well. And that's significant. And we often see introvert-extrovert pairings in leadership, like mm-hmm. Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. And Jennifer Conweller calls those genius opposites. So I think when we all embrace our own style of influence, we are better together. We're talking about the book, The Powerful Purpose of Introverts, Why the World Needs You to Be You. Now, describe how happiness can be different for introverts and extroverts. Yes, this was one of the most surprising things I found. But to extroverts, happiness feels like enthusiasm and excitement because of those neurotransmitters, that dopamine and the way they're wired. To introverts, happiness feels more like calm and contentment. So this especially matters in relationships. I've talked to a lot of introvert, extrovert couples who have been trying to make each other happy, not realizing that they each experience it differently. And so I think a powerful question that you can ask, whether it's to a spouse, a coworker, a close friend, family, is just describe happiness in different terms. What does it actually feel like to you? And so I think understanding that about each other can be powerful. It can also keep introverts from chasing the cultural stereotype of happiness that's more extroverted, but doesn't actually fit them. Now, what does it mean for each of us to live our powerful purpose? And I love the use of that phrase, powerful purpose, particularly for uh, introverts. But what does it mean to actually experience and live that powerful purpose? Yeah, I think living your powerful purpose simply means becoming all God created you to be, which obviously we're going to be on that journey the rest of our lives. But I think for introverts, especially, it's saying, you know, I live in a more extroverted culture. At times that can mean I feel pressure to change. But actually, our world needs what I have to offer more than ever before. Things like reflecting before reacting, listening well making space to breathe. I just, I look at the world around us and I just long for introverts to say, I'm going to be who I am and I'm going to trust that it makes a difference and to let go of any shame or guilt or what they've been told about. They need to change instead, just recognizing that we have strengths and gifts. And obviously I feel that way about my extrovert brothers and sisters too. I just think that introverts need that reminder maybe a bit more often. Absolutely. Well, this is really an incredible book. I appreciate so much your taking the time to talk with us about it today, and I would certainly recommend it to our listeners. Whether you're an introvert or extrovert, we can help understand one another better. Uh, The book is titled The Powerful Purpose of Introverts, Why the World Needs You to Be You. Holly Gerth, thank you so much for joining us. Stay safe and uh, have a great evening. Thank you. The Powerful Purpose of Introverts. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. And everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. We are entering into a national holiday of Thanksgiving in which we are called upon. We have the opportunity collectively to give thanks. Now, some people thank the universe. Some people just thank their friends and family for 
how uh, they have contributed to the enjoyment of life, and that's all valid as well. But the object of our thanksgiving in Scripture is God, who so graciously provides for us everything, not just what we need, but beyond what we need. Every breath we have taken from the time we rose this morning, and by the way, we rose this morning, that's evidence of his grace, has been provided by God himself. And for those of us who know Jesus Christ, we can rest in him that even in the midst of a pandemic, and who knows what's ahead, uh, we can have peace and joy. We have a purpose and a sense of direction. We can be men and women of great thanksgiving. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Well, ahead of Thanksgiving, which will be celebrated amid a COVID-19 pandemic and following a divisive election, there's a new survey that shows that the majority of Americans still have reason to be thankful. Now, that, uh, from my perspective, uh, represents someone who is woke. (laughs) You are awakened to the grace of God, to his goodness that you experience as an individual follow, follower and his common grace that he lavishes on all of humanity. The poll from Nashville-based Lifeway Research shows that more than 84% of American adults say that they are thankful for their family. Well, that's encouraging. 69% are thankful for health, 63% for their friends, and 63% of Americans are thankful for memories. In a year that has been difficult for most, Americans still express a lot of thanks, the executive director of Lightweight Research says, Scott McConnell. Well, this year of loss and division doesn't mean people have an absence of good things for which to be thankful. In fact, we've had more time to think about it, to perhaps regard those things for which we should be thankful, and reason to count our blessings in ways that busyness prior to the pandemic didn't permit. Well, on Saturday, the United States surpassed the 12 million confirmed coronavirus cases with more than 255,900 deaths. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Research Center. Well, the LifeWay survey conducted earlier in September with about 1,200 Americans says only 33 percent of Americans are grateful for their achievements on Thanksgiving and 21 percent express gratitude for their wealth. So perhaps our Attention is shifted to the right things, not that achievements and wealth are things that we should not be grateful for. The study noted that compared to a 2016 LifeWay survey, fewer Americans were thankful this year for the same options. Four years ago, 88% of Americans said that they were thankful for their family, 77% of which said they were thankful for health, 71% were grateful for friends, 51% thankful for achievements, 32% had expressed gratitude for their wealth. Keeping in mind that while we might say, I gained this wealth for myself, we recognize what scripture says. We need to be very careful about even the source of our health and our wealth. We may have had a role to play a hand in generating wealth, but um, it all belongs to him. Oh, this year, a majority of Americans are giving thanks to God. The majority. That silver lining once again. With 67% saying they typically give thanks to God, up from 63% in 2016. 68% meanwhile say they typically give thanks to family. Only 16% of the respondents are expressing gratitude toward themselves. I'm not sure how you express gratitude toward yourself, but I suppose in the narcissistic age that we live in, uh, that may make sense. Well, giving someone else thanks is not a given on Thanksgiving, according to Mr. McConnell, who's uh, the Lifeway um, head of this survey. But four times as many people give thanks to family or God than those who thank themselves. And it seems like it'd be a cold and lonely Thanksgiving if I sat around the table 
stuffed myself into oblivion only to say, thank you, Georgine, for everything you've done for me. I don't know. It seems a little odd to me. Well, those with evangelical beliefs, 96%, and most self-identified Christians, 94%, who attend worship services weekly are most likely to give thanks to God. Among other groups, 83% of Protestants, 72% of Catholics, 62% of those from other religions, and 32% of religiously unaffiliated Americans are giving thanks to God. So this is a wonderful season in which we are encouraged to do just that. But perhaps it's also a, a good reminder that for those of us who recognize the goodness and the grace of God, this is a regular practice. We just do it corporately, perhaps, uh, during this season, during this day of Thanksgiving, whereas we're doing it on a regular basis on our own and with others throughout the rest of the year, because we truly have a great deal to be thankful for. Give thanks to the Lord at all times. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Well, we're just about out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Hope you'll join us here tomorrow. And in the meantime, have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.